0: Good evening, everyone. Um, Welcome to this event. Um, My name is Ganga Sridhar, and I am at the Psychological and Behavioral Sciences Department. I'm also an affiliate at the Department of Geography and Environment. Welcome to the event, the carbon-conscious consumer going beyond nudges with Nudge Plus. Um, Climate change is really the defining challenge of our time because it's an existentialist risk. Behavioral public policy has um, received a lot of attention recently, Um, but ever since, um, well, over the past decade since Nudge came out, a lot of behavioral policy has basically been focused on using nudges to change behavior, which largely implies changing the choice architecture and leveraging these unconscious processes and biases. Um, Well, now we're in 2019, and... We're <laughs> not really changing carbon-conscious behavior yet, <laughs> or at least as effectively as we need to. No doubt there's been good evidence that nudges can have impacts on, on moving people toward more pro environmental behaviors um, and also reduce emissions. Um, in fact, some of the most famous nudge studies, like, um, like Alcott's work on energy consumption, uses nudges. But we have a lot more work to do, and hopefully, today we're going to discuss one of the tools or one of the ideas which help us move beyond that. And for that, we have a fantastic panel lined up. We have um, Professor Peter John from King's College London, known for his work on agenda setting, local politics, and behavioral interventions. He, along with Professor Jerry Stoker, who's Professor of Governance at the University of Southampton, whose research looks at um, urban politics, local and regional governance, and public participation, they've got this wonderful book, Nudge Nudge, um, and some of the ideas come from there. I expected one of you to hold it up yeah. in, a, no. in, a, yeah. in a pitch, but uh, there you go. A um, bit shy. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Okay. We were, we were, told, that, we were uh, told that
1: marketing's not a good thing. <laughs>
0: That, that might come up, actually, uh, in the questions. So, and then we also have Professor Dame Theresa Marteau DBE, Director of the Behavioral and Health Research Unit at the University of Cambridge, whose work has focused on interventions to improve population health and reduce health inequalities, but also looking at these unconscious processes. And we have Sanjay Banerjee, who is a doctoral candidate at the Department of Geography and Environment as well. Thank you all very much for coming today. Thanks to Isabel also for helping organize all of this. And I will leave the floor to the speakers. Quick housekeeping rules. The Twitter hashtag for This Is LSE Festival. The event is being audio recorded. Each of our distinguished speakers will have around five minutes to present your ideas followed by two questions from me, after which the floor is really yours. So um, we've kept it short in order to encourage as much dialogue and conversation as possible because we think this is a really exciting topic, which needs a lot of fresh insight. So with that, I will leave the floor to Peter.
2: Thank you, um, So this is where I'm going to start from. And I think there's lots of ways you can frame um, the environmental crisis that we face. Um, But I want to frame it in this kind of classic social science way, that of the kind of collective action kind of problem. Because this kind of cuts into how we want to think about nudging and nudge plus. Um, and actually, I show these slides to my students when we do the, the environmental lecture, and I sort of try to explain them the kind of collective action problem, how it starts at very local, everyday things, and then kind of scales up. So uh, I, this is the kind of picture that, uh, to my students, I sort of imagine this to be sort of the traditional kind of student sort of house, you know, sort of slightly untidy, lots of, <laughs> lots of uh, plates mounting up. Uh, and the idea being that, actually, most people in this house probably, actually probably want to watch all the plates, but the kind of structure of the situation means that nobody ever does the washing up because nobody wants to be seen like the person who's putting their head above the parapet. Similarly with, um, uh, with you know, waste in, in, in public places. Um, um, and then scaling up to the kind of planet that obviously there's a huge amount that governments can do, but we all are in this kind of huge, giant, collective action problem of coordinating what we do to get to that desired change. And that involves kind of citizens, associations, local governments, national governments, international governments. And, and a, kind of, a, kind of, a kind of big problem is that we've had the science for years about what we can do, um, but somehow that kind of change never really kind of comes about. And it's essentially about that kind of coordination and how we get there uh, that I'm very interested in. And I think nudge plus has, a, has a, a, a kind of small role, I think, to play. So um, uh, I this is the kind of basic critique of kind of nudge. I mean, we, I ho- assume you know about nudgings, that it's, it's applying behavioural science to try to kind of get citizens to where they want to go, but maybe not necessarily them being fully aware uh, of kind of being nudged. Um, we've got nudge units, and here's the kind of famous nudge book by Taylor and Sunstein. And here is actually um, uh, our our Nudge Nudge Think Think book, which was a kind of critique of the time. And I think the basic argument about Nudge is that basically kind of all the work has to be done by the consumer. Uh, The consumer is rather passive in the process. They might be doing things without kind of full kind of consent. And then the whole problem of whether these nudges are enough, that the kind of small percentage point changes you can get from nudges are really enough to address the challenges which I've just kind of put out to you. Um, So, um, in an earlier phase, uh, in the Nudge, Nudge, Think, Think, which is now in its second edition, we basically thought, well, maybe it makes sense that we actually need to have a kind of giant think about these issues, a a large collective think. Um, uh, And we tested all these things out in this book. And in fact, these things are quite hard to get off the ground and quite hard to turn into kind of action. So... um, our idea is an actual fact we want a kind of approach which kind of takes the best of the kind of nudge approach that actually says, well, governments have got a role to try and influence citizen behaviour, but not treat citizens as if they're just objects of some kind of behavioural science sort of experiment, effectively. Although they're quite a lot, I do quite a lot of those experiments uh, myself. Um, but the idea is that we might want to kind of treat citizens as kind of thinking... Adults, so while they're being nudged, they may actually kind of be prompted to kind of reflect on the nature of that challenge. And the idea is you can connect one nudge to another, and this will kind of scale up. So it incorporates a bit more conscious uh, thought. And the idea is that rather than just this one off change from a nudge, you might get this kind of self-sustained behavior change over time. So in some ways, with the deliberation, we kind of expect people to almost kind of walk out of the deliberation uh, sort of chamber, almost sort of blinded by the light, uh, changing their behavior. I think the nudge plus approach, I think we accept that these changes are bound to be incremental, but we can scale them up, hopefully sufficiently fast enough, to deal with the challenge that we now face. Thank you.
3: Thank you, Peter, uh, for setting up the stage, and thank you to all of you for coming this evening to listen to our talk. Um, As uh, Ganga already presented, uh, the theme for today is the carbon-conscious consumer, um, and how can we go beyond nudges with uh, this idea of Nudge+. plus? Now, when we think about any sort of consumer, it was not long back that economists started realizing that homo economicus, or the rational man, uh, is flawed. We all suffer from uh, biases because of the heuristics of the shortcuts we follow, uh, and because of which all the economic models might start breaking down, because humans (laughs) don't exactly behave the way you think them to behave. Um, And at this point of time, Thaler and Sunstein came up with their great idea of nudges, uh, which is a change in the choice architecture. Uh, that co opts your internal processes and makes you work better. Uh, That's good for the society. So probably when you guys were coming here, uh, you took the central line and you got down and you were taking the escalator up. Uh, The first nudge that you experienced was the footprint on the escalator that asked you to stand on one side. Uh, That's the change in the choice uh, experiment. Uh, What we are proposing is something a bit further than that. And to give you an example, uh, I have these two lines here. Now, can I have a quick show of hands if you think that these two lines are of the same length? Great. <laughs> right. This means that all of you, at some point, have been part of a psychology class. <laughs> because this is the famous uh, Müller-Lyer problem, but I tripped you. In this case, <laughs> and now they're not of the same length. This is exactly why nudges can't work in all the environments. This was a problem here. You had a heuristic that you were following. Somebody at some point corrected that heuristic, maybe not through choice architecture, but through a certain rule, and you went by that. But now when I change the choice environment, you still stuck to it. But see, you can't work, so you need to (laughs) think. before you can apply any sort of heuristic to the problem that you're dealing with. Uh, And this brings us uh, to the idea of Nudge Plus, which uh, Peter and Jerry had developed. And when I started my PhD, I came to Peter asking if he would be willing to supervise me, and he warmingly took me in. And ever since then, I'm working to develop the design. So, what is nudge plus? Uh, nudge plus is combining any sort of nudge with a reflective plus. A reflective uh, plus is something that makes you think. It's a thinking strategy. It's not a pure think. It's a deliberation which will make you change your action. It's a transformation of perspectives that we have. And in this case, uh, find where the point is. Okay. In this case, we can think about this as a speedometer, and this is a spectrum of agency autonomy that we have here. Uh, moving from no autonomy, which is totally opaque, like the nudges, we can increase autonomy and go to something like boosts and things. Uh, now these are all different kinds of strategies to change, but Nudge Plus essentially embodies this entire spectrum in thinking about if you provide reflection, how does it lead to a change in behaviour that could be persistent, uh, more autonomy pre- uh, more autonomy preserving, uh, and of course more transparent, uh, making it good for the consumer. Now what is the evidence uh, from the literature that we can support a system where heuristics and reflection can occur together? Now, after some digging in in psychology, this is how they present it. God, I shouldn't have put the animation. These are my favorite characters from Simpsons. You can see Homer, you can see Marge. the married, uh, living together. And the brain actually works like this married couple. So psychologists essentially think about these as the dual process theories, where Homer here, he's a fast thinker, he always acts on his, uh, on his step, he's intuitive, he's heuristically driven, he makes all the wrong choices, he's the bad guy here. Uh, and here, the Marge is like the slow person, she is rational, uh, she thinks through decisions she makes, and she advises Homer on how he should run the household, so she's kind of prime minister of the house, that's like your mum of... Uh, <laughs> Now, the dual process theories here, they kind of uh, dictate how Homer and Marge should avoid a divorce, so how they should act if they're in conflict. And pertinently, what the Dutch literature by Kahneman and Traversky and Stanovich and West have followed is something like a default interventionist system, where they assume that this guy is the bad guy always, this girl is the good girl always, and this girl will tell this guy what to do in the brain. But recently we have seen more evidence where there have been hybrid strategies which shows that March can be wrong at times as well. So the rational part of your brain, which is the slow part, can also be wrong. And there can be a synergistic relationship, which brings us to the idea that both the heuristic and the reflective mind can exist together and we can devise strategies to make them work together, which is not a plus. Now the way this could happen is these light bulbs here uh, show you the different parts of the brain. So type 1 uh, is, the, is the fast bit, so this is Homer. type 2 is the slow bit, and this is large, and nut plus is essentially combining uh, these two together through some strategies. So the way you can combine is either in a sequential pattern, where you can activate either type 1 before type 2, or type 2 before type 1, or it could be simultaneous where you can combine both of them together. Now, to give you an example, let's say you signed a commitment device, a contract, it's an active mechanism choice, uh, that I would turn vegan in 2020, that's your new resolution. Uh, that's settling your type 2 part of the brain, telling forcefully, reflecting that you're planning to do something. Now whenever you go to a restaurant, your type 1 activates when you see the steak. But then you remember that, oh, I have signed this contract, and therefore I will reflect and not act on it. That's a NUT Plus. So combining a plus could be in any sort of sequence. Uh, it depends on the context, of course. And where is the evidence for all of this? I made an extra slide, I'll just skip it. <laughs> uh, where is the evidence for all of this? Uh, well, this is being studied now. Uh, uh, we already have the paper, which is a work in progress for the design of NUT Plus. And these are the experiments that I'm currently working on. So this is uh, one with all my supervisors. Lovely faces you can see here. This is Susanna Morato. She's the head of the Department of Geography and Environment. Peter sitting here. And Matteo Glitzi from PBS. And what we did here was that we designed 12 different menus uh, combined from Restaurant Choice, which is a chain of restaurant in the UK. Um, And we use these different interventions. This is a systematic test of four different instruments, uh, nudges, nudge plus, things and boos. And what we're trying to see is which of these interventions are the most effective in sustainably altering food choices. Essentially, uh, making somebody eat meat less—that's the objective. Uh, this is an online experiment currently going on. More than 3,500 respondents, uh, nationally representative, through prolific. Uh, in the pipeline, of course, we have uh, this experiment with uh, Dr. Manu Savani, who's here. Um, and Ganga, Um, and what we are planning is we are tying up with a bunch of water and energy regulators in the UK, Um, initially we are trying to see if we can work this out with the student halls, we have gathered kind of uh, response from 54 from the UOL, LSE uh, and Brunel, and we're trying to see it by providing water timers and combining it with dual self pledge cards, which is like where people sign a pledge, two pledge cards today. Um, One is for now, which they hang up in the bathrooms, let's say, and one they commit to a certain thing. Let's say I'm going to take a shower in three months, in three minutes, and they post it back to us. And then when the time comes, we send it back to them saying, this is what you promised. If you've reflected, how have you acted? So this is something that we're going to launch pretty soon, uh, and we'll see where the evidence takes us if Nudge Plus is definitely the way beyond nudges.
4: Thank you. Um, Thanks very much. Um, It's always a thrill for me to come back to LSE. I did my first degree here, and I can't tell you how significant that was. And you're reminding us, Peter, that Nudge was published uh, ten ten or more years ago. Actually, uh, all the research, or much of the research done by social psychologists in the second part of the 20th century was telling the same story, which is, it's about context, it's about situation, and that really is uh, it was packaged incredibly well by Thaler and Sunstein but actually what they did was they stole the clothes of social psychology uh, that's my first statement um, Say <laughs> so smart, smart for them um, and uh, my second statement is I think having heard uh, uh, what, uh, what you've uh, the, the first two presentations I think I describe myself as a nudge plus sceptic um, so uh, what I want to do is to talk about changing behaviour at scale. So I'm thinking about the existential threat that we face um, which, uh, uh, for which we need to achieve absolute zero by 2050, and even that's getting a bit late. And I think where I want to focus us is in thinking about uh, a carbon-conscious citizen rather than consumer. And the reason, uh, I, hopefully, I will get there in just a couple of slides. The reason the citizen is important be, is because we need the citizen's voice to persuade the policymaker to implement the policies to change the cues in our environment that will enable the consumer to consume consume in a carbon-conscious way. So that's my argument. So uh, first of all, the scale of the change that's needed is absolutely huge in terms of how we live our lives. And I've just got one snapshot here from a report by a colleague of mine published at the end of last year, Julian Allwood. He's uh, an engineer, a systems scientist. And the bottom line is how are we going to get to absolute zero? And I just want to point out flying... Um, so they estimate that uh, all airports in the next ten years, apart from London, Glasgow, and Belfast, is in the UK, should be closing, um, and got no flights after 2050. This is an antidote to techno optimism. <laughs> um, and the other, uh, the other point. Uh, that they and others have made with regards to food, you can't read it, I'm afraid, uh, is to reduce our consumption of ruminant meat, so that's uh, beef and lamb, uh, as well as their products, uh, which is dairy, by at least 50% over the next few years. So... Um, Nudging, and uh, in my group uh, we've developed a sort of slightly uh, different operational uh, definition, just sort of changing cues in physical environments. I think it definitely can contribute. But one of the problems with nudging, changing those cues in the environments, that it's not uh, uh, others control our environments. And most have a commercial interest in not changing those cues. So to give you one example from one of the many field studies that my group have been conducted, this one was led by a PhD student of mine, Emma Garnett, who's based in conservation science in, in Cambridge. And what Emma did was she took one of the nudges that we've described, which is availability, and simply involves just increasing the proportion of plant-based meals. So this was conducted in college cafeterias, um, so uh, involving nearly 90,000 meals, so a large number of observations. And usually in the college uh, cafeterias, there's one plant-based meal to choose from and three non-plant. If you increase the proportion to two out of four, so you're not just adding plant, the important thing is that you're taking away some of the meat-based meals, then you can increase uh, the selection of plant-based meals by about 70%. And the footfall is the same, so people aren't going elsewhere. So, a relatively simple nudge this is a large effect and worth going for. But having evidence is just the first thing. And what we need to be doing is thinking about how to implement it. A very uh, influential uh, report, uh, the La- uh, Lancet Commission on uh, a new term to me, a global syndemic of climate change and obesity and malnutrition, talking about how a lot of those factors overlap. And it said, it describes how, um, uh, while we have much evidence, there's policy inertia. So the three sets of complex barriers were described in this report for implementing effective interventions. Uh, inadequate political leadership and governance to enact policies that's not describing our government it was a global report. Uh, Strong opposition that I've already mentioned to policies by powerful commercial interests and we've seen that with some of you may be familiar with the merchants of doubt, Uh, very good descriptions of what the tobacco industry, fossil fuel industries and others do in order to block effective policies. And the one that I just want to end on is the lack of demand uh, for policy action by the public. And what we, what we know is um, that, if you like, public will is a strong influence upon political will. Now, the demand is rising, particularly amongst those who don't have the vote, i.e. children. Um, And we've got growing movements, which are certainly raising the demand. Um, We've yet to see uh, much global action by way of policies, but that's a beginning. Um, And I want to end with just a piece of uh, evidence. It's not just for the uh, civil society movements. I think for general populations in general. While There's a lot of talk about fake news and how people respond in uh, complex ways to evidence. A, a systematic review um, from my group that was published a couple of weeks ago. What we did was we looked at what is the impact of communicating evidence of policy effectiveness on public support. And uh, we searched the literature for experimental studies where uh, there were at least two groups one group given evidence either of effectiveness or ineffectiveness of a policy, another group not given any, any evidence. And uh, we looked across policy domains, but the 36 experiments we found, 20 were in health, about 10 were in environment, and then a, a rag, rag bag of others, gun control, uh, being one of the main ones, so you can tell which countries these came from. So the bottom line is, 36 experiments, when we pooled the results, when people are told or shown evidence of effectiveness, then their support for policy increases. An estimated increase of about 4%, and that's based It will go in favour if you give them evidence of effectiveness and a a similar uh, effect, but in the opposite direction if you give them evidence of ineffectiveness. So that's just to say that evidence is one small uh, variable that can make a difference. So to end, um, what I've argued is that uh, the carbon-conscious citizen, so it's about us as voters who can make the difference, as well as through civil society organisations, it's key to overcoming the policy inertia to demand the implementation of effective policies. And we know that those will involve some fiscal policies, but they will also involve changing physical, uh, digital and social environments, i.e. some nudges, and that's how nudges can contribute overall. Thanks very much. Uh, well, uh,
1: good evening everyone. Thanks very much for turning up. Um, in the time-honoured manner of academics, I'm not going to talk about the last research project which was the one that I was involved with in PETA that led to the concept of Nudge Plus and i talk about my current research project. Um, and this is a project looking at the issue of trust and how people uh, understand and construct uh, trust. And it was a uh, a project that was funded, I think, uh, because um, most um, uh, people feel that there maybe is a crisis of trust uh, in our societies, and I think this is a significant part of the discussion that we need to uh, 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 have uh, today as well. And I'm going to try and work the discussion back from trust to uh, Nudge Plus. So. I have the advantage of going last so I can say I'm in favour of everything that everyone else has said, (laughs) which I am, Uh, but in addition I want to argue that uh, effective action certainly does require uh, governments to actually uh, do a lot themselves. And it not only requires governments to do uh, action within the nation state, it requires international cooperation. The difficulty with that is that there is overwhelming evidence that people do not trust governments to take action, especially action related to climate change in anything that involves long-term policy change attracts a huge amount of distrust. And it's not just that um, uh, uh, there is this kind of general uh, disbelief in government's ability to uh, actually deliver. There's a kind of wider sense of cynicism out there. So actually, there's quite a lot of evidence of not just lack of trust but of active distrust. And that is, uh, uh, I think, a significant uh, uh, challenge uh, in terms of constructing uh, policy in this area. So that even if you could get uh, more active citizen engagement and involvement, even if you could get more sophisticated behavioural change mechanisms, there's still uh, the issue of trust uh, that is uh, confronting you. And in fact, uh, I know to know. I need to quote nothing more than that report that Teresa referred to by Orwood and colleagues. It's an amazing report to read, but the one bit of it that is absolute garbage is the bit when it talks about trust, because on page 34 it decides that the underlying big problem for the implementation of a lot of these policy changes is trust and the lack of trust. It then proceeds to spend about three paragraphs waffling on about game theory and thinks that somehow or other that provides a solution. And I find it, and this is past seven o'clock, someone is allowed to insult your other scientific colleagues. One of the constant issues I've had is that when you talk to natural scientists and engineers, they constantly use their brain when they're talking about engineering or science problems But they are complete idiots when it comes to talking about how human beings behave. And they don't actually address those issues as seriously as they should. So the evidence in the pamphlet is overwhelming when it comes to uh, interventions to do with nature, science and engineering. All they've got in relation to trust is a bit of game theory. Well. There's a lot of evidence out there about how people form their trust judgments, and I think it would be helpful in this conversation to actually include part of that discussion. It might also be helpful if they considered more broadly some of the wider work on public policy change and the way that governments work and operate. So I want to leave you with three thoughts. First of all, a lot of what governments do, no one ever notices. So actually, maybe we don't even need citizen support or uh, our trust. Actually, governments can just get on and do stuff, and they do regularly get on and do stuff, and they're fantastically gifted at deflecting blame or taking responsibility uh, for uh, those actions. So maybe we should uh, be concerned about that, Uh, or maybe we should celebrate that. The second thing I want to suggest to you is that the challenge in this environment is that uh, the challenge of distrust alongside... The climate change environment we're operating in actually is almost as serious as the actual climate change challenge itself because it's very difficult to construct the kinds of interventions that we've been talking about in a highly cynical environment. And the third thought is that maybe actually Nudge Plus does enable us to explore those issues in a different way because Nudge Plus is about trying to recognise the complexity that goes into a trust judgment. It is partly rational, but it does use a lot of heuristics and it is often affected by emotion and effect. And what Nudge Plus, I think, is about trying to address is to bring those two elements in the decision-making together. And maybe we need to think about Nudge Plus to shift the trust judgments that people are making, and that would help shift the overall uh, 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 policy capacity in relation to climate change. Thanks very much for listening.
0: All right. Wonderful. Thank you very much. So I just have one question for all the speakers and then um, and please choose to answer in whichever order you will and then I think I'll just open up the floor to questions and comments from the audience. So we've had um, a lot of um, you know, conversation about how climate change is a collective action dilemma. So, two questions. This element of reflection, which is quite distinct to Nudge Plus, might it actually end up unintentionally polarizing people? Because we know from emerging evidence that this is a big issue, democratic polarization, people disagreeing with each other, Whether on tech platforms or even when you look at evidence which is counter to your opinion, you tend to update in the direction of your prior beliefs, confirmation bias. So would these interventions unintentionally backfire? Um, And with respect to um, when you actually show them how effective a policy is, it's great that they do update in the right direction, Um, but is this still enough for social change? Because most of the interventions we've been talking about is targeted at individual level small incremental actions but ultimately what we need is huge virality actually of behavior so that is my broad question to you guys and after that we'll take it from there
2: okay um, If we just go in order um, um it's a it's, it's a very good question and i think there isn't actually a guarantee that introducing a degree of reflection is necessarily i think going to lead to beneficial outcomes and in some sense that's I think okay because I think um, I think the problem with the nudge ap- approach was that you were always assumed to go in one particular direction, and I think actually what what the nudge plus is doing is actually allowing individuals to actually make to a certain extent make their own choices, influenced by the policymaker, um, and I think the hope is that um, I think about, as Jerry said by introducing some of the complexity behind these things that people can start to think through this rather than going. To a kind of more polarized uh, environment. So I t- totally take on board your question. It's a really good question. Um, I just hope we can sort of get there through this kind of incremental try uh, and try again kind of strategy. The other thing we ought to talk about is also policymakers. Can policymakers be nudged? Can they be get. And I, think, I think there's a role for kind of bottom up nudges to actually influence policymakers in the same way that policymakers are trying to influence. Uh, citizens.
3: Yeah, I think I agree with uh, Peter in that we, we don't know if there wouldn't be boomerang effects when we are using uh, nudges. The entire uh, Nudge Plus, the entire idea is that it's uh, more liberty-preserving, uh, it's more autonomy-granting, and the idea of uh, what's socially good for everybody is a normative question here. Um, but I think what's important is that the way nudges work, they, they always seem to work uh, in the dark. Uh, as Bowens has claimed. Uh, so the idea of nudge plus is to make it a bit more open and transparent. And uh, in the nudge literature, the social planner who's nudging, he's always thought to be uh, a good person. He's benevolent. Uh, in this case, when you're giving reflection to the person, the agent can actually decide. Because in real life, the planner can actually be rent-seeking and he might be irrational on his own. Um, on the second point, I think, uh, yes, these are incremental changes, but recently, in line with the UK's, uh, the Triple C's report of how we can put forward the, the goals for achieving net zero, I think behavior change uh, is uh, accounting for 40% uh, of the entire transition. So small changes can add up. Uh, it's just how we can transform them into being persistent changes.
1: I'll, I'll go next. Um, I think that uh, Anger is absolutely right to raise the issue of uh, polarisation, because I felt the audience wasn't getting depressed enough. And uh, <laughs> uh, Obviously the scale of dealing with climate change is hard, and I tried to argue that in an age of cynicism it's hard, but if you add polarisation to the mix and the evidence that um, uh, people uh, simply trust those that are in their in-group and don't trust those that are uh, part of the out-group, Uh, then you've got a formula for uh, serious um, depression uh, in this group. Um, And the only uh, uh, counter bit of light I can offer is that the evidence suggests that actually um, uh, polarisation is uh, not as strong as uh, some people suggest it is. It's more evident in the United States of America than in many other countries. And that actually... Many people still make their trust judgments not through a polarized uh, lens and the polarization is largely itself a creation of the action of political elites. (coughs) Um, So it's not that the people themselves are polarized, it's that the rhetoric of politicians creates that polarization. And I think that my reaction then to the challenge laid out is that actually, What we need is politicians who are far better at signalling that they are trustworthy because actually what's required is for them to then feel that they are sanctioned to take the actions necessary to uh, deal with the climate change uh, crisis. So it seems to me that the challenge is less to shift citizens and more to shift the behaviour of politicians to make them better at signalling that they are trustworthy.
4: Um, could I uh, add to that, and maybe there's a question Jerry might want to come back on, um, Nora O'Neill in her Wreath Lectures talked about trust um, in the context of people behaving in trustworthy ways, and so uh, they can signal, uh, governments may want to signal uh, that they're being trustworthy, but uh, that would need to rest upon trustworthy behaviour. Um, just a couple of other points. Um, at the moment in this country, people might be aware there's, um, I think, a, a very interesting experiment in citizen participation. We've, uh, we're coming to the end of four citizens' assemblies on climate change um, with a report um, that's, that's going to be published in April. Uh, there was a Citizens' Assembly on climate change in, uh, in Ireland in 2018, as well as uh, on other topics that people would be aware of, um, some of which resulted in um, legislative change. So I think that that is quite an interesting way of citizen citizens signalling um, what they find acceptable. I still come back to um, uh, Nudge... Plus, I just don't get it. I really don't. <laughs> because um, if I think, you know, we've had uh, conscious consumers of fruit and vegetables and, you know, a whole variety of things over the decades. It's, it's sort of done nothing to our behavior. And uh, it's the Greeks who described Akrasia, I think, this, this concept that there's a gap between what people value and what they do. Um, and we know that uh, well, the, the the number of people who are concerned about the climate, the number of people who are concerned about their health, uh, is it's a majority. Of course, it's a trade-off in terms of what they're prepared to do. But the idea that we're going to let people float on what we know is broadly ineffective through uh, Nudge Plus. I think is. Um, uh, irresponsible are as scientists.
0: No, y'all. <laughs> <laughs> Say, come back, audience. <laughs> I'm going to go to you guys now. <laughs> so um, maybe we'll do two questions at a time, and I should go away from this screen. But um, we'll do two at a time. So, right? We you can ask your question. Hi, so my question is
4: regarding the concept of the carbon-conscious citizen. I found that quite an interesting touch. Um, So I'm wondering, what are the building blocks of a society which is full of carbon-conscious citizens? And then, so this question is mostly targeted at Teresa. And then, um, does
0: a majority of carbon-conscious citizens make carbon-conscious consumers obsolete? Thank you. One more. All right?
3: Um, thank you for your talk. Uh, I was interested in whether the Nudge Plus framework takes into account spillover behaviors. So, even though you might be presenting the consumer or the citizen with reflective information, uh, he or she may not be reflecting on cross domain. So, I take a shower, a hot shower, for less than three minutes, but then I go and consume uh, steak for dinner. Um, you know, and this is where probably we need more r- regulation um, with with childhood obesity we've seen restaurants coming up with all sorts of things that, uh, different coloured glasses but do they actually work and is there any way of systematically over long term measuring change
2: thank you okay.
0: maybe Teresa wants to yeah. start with the first one and then we
4: yeah uh, good, as a childhood obesity, um, we haven't, uh, that that, that remains a a major problem. But uh, citizens, uh, the the carbon-conscious citizens, so I don't know, so it's been problematised. If I knew how to... uh, capture uh movements create them uh that had the power to tip over governments uh that that would be great but we can see it in some areas so tobacco control is one area where um the majority of the population i think this is because the majority of the population don't smoke cigarettes um, governments are pretty unafraid to be slightly bolder with tobacco control because nobody's coming back at them um, and everybody's concerned about the children and stopping them from, from smoking tobacco. So, so, so I think in your question you outline the answer which is if we have got the carbon conscious citizen Um, who is calling for effective policies um, of the kind that are outlined in the Allwood report, um, then um, we wouldn't need carbon-conscious consumers because we could have uh, non-conscious consumers because the options uh, that would be the default options Uh, would be those that aren't uh, eating into the tiny carbon budget that we should be operating on.
3: Um, To your question, uh, we have definitely thought about spillovers and it depends on the degree of the reflection involved. Um, There could be different degrees of reflection, one where you could self-reflect on your actions completely. I missed a slide, which could have probably given the better answer, but there could be simple salience building reflection as well. Um, We're not ruling out the possibility that there might not be any sort of uh, moral licensing or compensation effects, Uh, but definitely if somebody is self-reflecting, if you choose a vegan diet for yourself, the, the chances that you will probably Uh, do something that's healthy for you would also be high. So there might be promoting or persisting spillovers. And at this point, I can say that, yes, I pioneer the cause of Nudge Plus, but we'll see what the evidence has to say.
0: And just to quickly add on the citizen point of view, Um, one way recently where we've seen carbon conscious citizens has been the protests for extinction rebellion who've been actually pioneering citizen assemblies recently it came out that they've been basically blacklisted as a potential threat by the Home Office so I think there's that conversation which needs to be had which is what is responsible citizen behavior and instead of it being blacklisted and seen as a security risk really what that's looking like and I think that's a very important conversation which should move beyond I mean I think participation in citizen assembly is is, crucial but should also go beyond that to to bigger issues as well two more questions yes
4: and there's pretty strong action at the moment by governments on coronavirus both action taken and action proposed for the possible future do you think that's some sort of model for
0: um for climate change action one more question. Thank you. Um, so my question will be around actually like on the carbon conscious citizen as well, but more so towards like sustainable conscious citizens. And in terms of like um, for our behavior to change, how big of a role does business have to play in? Because, for example, if a brand attach itself, attach itself as um, sustainable and then... Um, kind of like promote itself as, oh, if you buy my product, then you're going to be a sustainable activism. Um, how much is that commodified? And, um, and then is that actually participating or like how can we, you know, like go around it? Thank you.
2: Yeah, yeah. On, on this, I, 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 I think the discussion about consumers and citizens is kind of crucial to this whole debate. And I think in the nudge approach, I think there's a tendency to treat people like consumers, that they're in receipt information and there's a desired end of behavior. And I think the whole role of a citizen, um, it involves reflection, but also it involves in the end, and I think this is a way to respond a little bit to uh, Theresa's very good and relevant criticisms, that you want to get to a stage where people actually may take kind of action. So in some ways, I think the Nudge Plus is in a sense designed to put people on a kind of pathway. Um, I think with the coronavirus, I'm not quite sure, I mean, in some ways we've yet to see how effective government policies I think they've been, they're have very cautious, I think, governments and very, very kind of not wanting vast amounts of debate. But and there's discussion. definitely
4: proposals in there for pretty strong action. Yes. And I meant to also say that it includes um, a nudge on personal action as well. Oh, yes. Absolutely. Um, okay. c- can I yeah. just uh, quick, quickly comment um, in, in terms of the commodification of um, carbon consciousness as I mentioned, uh, the, uh, there, are, there are powerful commercial interests for the major changes that are needed to achieve net or absolute zero. And in the area that I primarily work in, in health-related behaviour, we have very strong commercial interests, alcohol industry, tobacco industry, fast food industry. It um, doesn't mean that... it. Everybody is lobbying, but very often what is needed is for people to consume less, and there isn't much profit in that. Um, so I think that's that's a real problem. We need to face it. Um, in terms of the coronavirus, I think it's a really uh, interesting model. Um, Not necessarily the idea that governments are um, uh, uh, calling for and indeed imposing major changes in order to prevent the, the spread, but what the consequences are, so people I'm sure will have seen what the air quality is like over China. Absolutely fantastic. Um, Diageo, a major drinks company, shares beginning to fall, uh, because no one's going out to drink their stuff. And suddenly, you know, in universities, we're all being told, do you really need to go to that meeting? Do you need to fly there? So um, before, if this goes on for three months, I think it would be the best thing for climate change that you can imagine. Because, uh, again, going back to my undergraduate degree, what I learned, I then, and people have forgotten that. You don't change behaviour... Well, the most powerful way of changing behaviour uh, is not to go in through the attitudes, but to change their behaviour. Then their attitudes change, and then they feel happy about their behaviour. So this could be the biggest unintended experiment that you could imagine that could do more for the planet um, that than any of the um, attempts by government. So, yeah. Um
1: Sorry. I just wanted to... Uh, <laughs>
4: You heard it here.
1: (laughs) I I wanted to come back on It's a plot! (laughs) I wanted to come back on the issue of the um, uh, construction of politics. I think that um, my fear is that uh, uh, there is a great deal of naivety about the way in which politics uh, works and operates, especially if you uh, believe that a few citizens' assemblies is actually going to change... Uh, the political environment and I know that Teresa quoted the example of uh, Ireland but actually the change in Ireland was in part stimulated by uh, uh, a citizens assembly but in fact driven by uh, large-scale well-organized public campaign and protest movements that have been in operation for quite a considerable amount of time. Insofar as we've attempted to discuss with people whether they trust citizens' assemblies to make decisions, what we found is that they don't particularly trust citizens' assemblies in making decisions. And I think that... The other thing I found strange about this whole conversation is that somehow you've divided people into both consumers and citizens, but actually they're both at the same time. And in both instances, their prime feature is they don't pay much attention Uh, to their role either as a consumer or as a citizen this is because they've got lives they get on and do other stuff for example they're probably watching the football not attending uh, this uh, lecture Um, so it seems to me that we need to uh, be much more realistic about the way that politics works and operates and I think that the interesting feature about the coronavirus is that Governments have taken action without a great deal of public consultation and engagement. And it goes back to, I think, one of the main points I was trying to make, which is that actually, the crucial thing about climate change is that governments just need to actually act. And they need to act in a way that demonstrates that they are trustworthy. And I think that's actually what people are looking for. There's no evidence that people want to consistently not trust government. There's a lot of evidence that they do. So actually what you need is a demonstrated capacity for trustworthy governance and I think that that would provide a better solution but to justify the conversation about Nudge Plus it seems to me that Nudge Plus is a way of signalling to politicians about how they might be able to construct that better signalling towards them themselves being trustworthy.
0: One question here, and one question back there. Hi, thank you very much for the talk. Um, my name is Saskia, and I'm an environment and development student at the LSE. And I was wondering, um, there is a lot of talk about Um, that it's a collective problem, but that the individual can make such a big difference. And I was wondering how you can communicate, or how would you suggest communicating between those scales and making the individual feel like an important part of the system, but at the same time not overwhelming the individual with um, too much responsibility to be the system change that needs to come from governments? Thank you.
3: Hi. Um, <clears throat> thank you for the thank you to the panel for your presentation. Um, I just wanted to ask you a couple of questions, really, because from the presentation I've seen, one of the things that stood out was that Nudge Plus is assuming that a lot of infrastructures are in place and they need remodelling to achieve a level of effectiveness or change. Um, in this case, uh, carbon con- carbon conscious consumer. Um, and I just want to ask you what what do you do where you're looking at climate change? in areas where the institutions for change aren't available. So let's say in areas where, um, let's say Africa, for instance, where people experience the worst effects of climate change more than we do here in the West.
0: Perfect. Um, I think we'll answer these two, and then I think we'll have time for exactly one more question. So, see
2: you guys. Yeah, I think I think I think it's I think in, 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 the, in the first question I think it's really about that. The, I think it's collective action failures going on, but at the individual level and at other kind of levels, of governments have collective action failures in terms of negotiating with other governments. So I think it's really about the whole thing is about communication. So that it's a sense that all these things happen together. So I think governments have to take the strong action, international things, but at, at the same time citizens have their role to play, and each one needs to know that everybody's kind of moving in the same direction. And at the moment, I don't, I don't think that is happening. And I think the Nudge Plus idea is an attempt to kind of encourage greater kind of signalling, greater kind of reflection, at the citizen level at least, to then hopefully influence the kind of other, uh, 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 other levels. And I think that can, that, can, that can happen on a global scale, uh, in, di- in different countries with different... going to the second question, at different kind of scales. In a sense, I think um, it's that kind of communication, I think, is absolutely essential
3: so for the first question i think uh, the the common conception that uh, people get overwhelmed when they're asked to act is is kind of changing uh, Yale uh, does an opinion on climate beliefs every year and uh, they have it on their, on their open portal. If you just track that, what you would probably see is that over time, over the years, uh, the belief and the action that individuals have and how much they can contribute to this uh, is gradually increasing. Uh, don't quote me on the figures, but I think it has grown f- at least six percentage points in two years. Uh, so people are also becoming more and more willing to act and the becoming more confident in the fact that they can make a change. Um, On the second point, I think uh, for for nudges or Nudge Plus to act, uh, because they do not involve any sort of uh, pecuniary incentives, uh, all you need is a social planner providing the policies uh, to these individuals and then uh, making sure that enough instruments are in place for reflection to act. So that kind of directs us to the government's role, which... uh I think Jerry can probably <laughs> give a better answer than me.
1: Yeah, well, I, I think that um, I, I'll, I'll concentrate on the, the f- second question because my reaction to the first question is similar to the other two uh, speakers. Uh, I, it seems to me that, in the end, um, I wouldn't bother with another international climate change uh, meeting. Uh, Glasgow's a lovely place, but... Uh, <laughs> Honestly, you could have so much more fun if you weren't in a conference discussing climate change. Uh, so I would concentrate on pushing especially uh, the uh, nation-states that are uh, described as the development, developed or well, uh, wealthy uh, nations, uh, the ones that are part of the OECD, to take uh, the necessary action. They have the responsibility and the capacity to take action, Uh, they should be uh, leading the way, they shouldn't be asking or trying to uh, ask others to do it. I I personally think that uh, you can waste an awful lot of time constructing international cooperation. I, I think it is a question of those nation states with the resources leading the way and I think we can all agree in this room that they've still got quite a way to go in terms of actually delivering anything of real effective intervention in this area. So let's have the conversation about what other nation states can do about it in 20 or 30 years time when the rich ones have gone off their asses and done something.
4: (laughs) If only we knew that that, that there was a way of achieving that. I mean, I don't know if you uh, would make a recommendation rather than having COP26, what should all those people be doing? How, how would you achieve?
1: Self-isolating, I think.
4: <laughs> um, I wanted to uh, return to the, the question about people feeling overwhelmed, just to say that I'm pretty sure that, sorry, who asked that question? Uh, yeah, that there is a growing literature and I'm not familiar with it, and particularly about young people. Um, feeling overwhelmed. I mean the broad literature tells us that a threat without any kind of action to mitigate the threat can lead lead people either to switch off or just feel helpless Um, and message framing can be important and I think joining a movement which is why the schools movement, um, Extinction Rebellion and others can be really important so that individuals aren't feeling alone. Um, but but there, there, there will be a literature, a growing literature on that, which I know not. Yeah, often...
0: eco-anxiety is increasingly being yeah. documented yeah. as an important thing. And there, I think, the action framing, where it's not um, fear, but it's actually hope. Yeah. And that's not to mean crazy optimism that it's going to be okay, because it might not be. <laughs> but it's more it's a question of working through that and actually ending up with concrete action steps, which can raise things like efficacy. Um, okay, so one last question, and then we'll call it a night. Um, So I guess
1: in terms of like Nudge and Nudge Plus, um, one of my questions is about like I understand that in terms of obesity and smoking that a lot of the hurt or harm that you do is internalized. When it comes to climate change, it's um, relying on other people to make solutions when you're dealing with their harm, even if you're a carbon conscious consumer or citizen. So I guess there's like an ethical question for me is if you think that citizens deserve the choice to have like, a nudge instead of being like, shoved in the right direction when like, so much of it is uh, harming other people. And if you think that for climate
0: change, we have the time to wait for people to change their behaviour. Fantastic question to end on. Should we be shoving people? Do we need nudges? <laughs> <laughs> Even if they're reflective. I
4: suppose,
2: I suppose the, the argument is that you can't, people re- often resent being kind of told what to do, and, and, and particularly in today's society, that it's, it's just very hard doing that, so in some ways you may actually then create the kind of resistance to it, which may actually undermine the, the, the shove. I'm totally sympathetic to your appropriate point, and some people just say we just need to get on and just do it, and, <laughs> and then solve the problem, so I am totally sympathetic to your point of view, but I think that will be the, the response, uh, that it basically you, you, would, you wouldn't get that kind of, as people just resent it effectively.
3: Just to make a quick addition to that, if you tell a kid not to do something, the kid will definitely do it. Uh, same works with people. Um, let them learn from their own mistakes. What is good and bad is subjective. Um, we might enable them to make the right choices, even if that might be harmful for them, is is less patronising and paternalistic, I feel. So, um,
1: I think that uh, democracies have a... Uh... A long history of muddling through to solutions. So I would strongly oppose any attempt to say that the climate change crisis requires us to move down a more authoritarian uh, or even totalitarian uh, form of government. It seems to me that democracies can muddle through. They muddle through when there is effective leadership in those democracies. So just to repeat my main theme, for me, the issue is not whether citizens feel nudged or shoved, but whether you've got political leaders that have got the guts to actually take decisions. And I'm arguing they can do that because the vast majority of people aren't paying attention. They won't notice until a lot further down the line. It is an incredible feature of democracies that most people don't pay attention most of the time. It's how almost all of the fundamental reforms in our societies have occurred. They've occurred because no one noticed.
4: Um, uh, Thinking about uh, tobacco as an example and uh, some of the more recent... uh, Well, first of all, it's multiple... Policy interventions that have led to a reduction in the smoking of tobacco in high-income countries, and uh, in in our own country over the last ten years, it was the harm. So it was the um, the consequence of uh, smoking upon other people. So secondary smoking effects um, that led to the banning of smoking in public places, and that was that was accepted. And so I think when we're talking about say Fossil fueled transport and our behaviour is harming others. It is. Uh, it is deemed to be a legitimate place for governments to start acting. Um, I've used a slightly different conceptualisation of nudging, uh, uh, taking it apart, taking it away from uh, um, the, uh, the the political implication in terms of um, uh, pater- uh, paternalism. What is it? Uh, Say so the paternalistic um, uh, liberalism. Li- liberal, lib- lib- libertarian liberal paternalism. Libertarian, libertarian, libertarian paternalism. paternalism. Yeah, liberal A concept well worth beginning Yeah, yeah, <laughs> no, Thank you. <laughs> uh, in that it's about the intervention rather than uh, how it's going to be implemented. Uh, so I, I think the key I think it, it raises you've raised a really key point to what extent is my right to carry on consuming, which actually is... very often the environments are shaped by other interests. So, I've talked about the commercial interests. Um, So, the reason that we're buying bigger and bigger cars isn't because we woke up one day and said, I really want a bigger car, but there's something going on that is leading to that. And I think we mustn't be naive about the fact that, unless we regulate, actually it's other people who are shaping our environments, which are damaging the one environment that we do have on the planet.
0: And uh, I think Goldsmiths did ban meat from its campus. I don't think it still allows students to bring meat, so it's liberty-preserving whatever... I don't believe in control, but anyway, whatever liberty-preserving is, and I think LSE is going to do the same. So um, on that note, thank you very much for coming. A big hand for our speakers and the audience. Thank you very much.